please turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. We're starting the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to look at the first five verses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you restore pain and brokenness and sin in our lives. That your hand is moving even when it feels like all is lost. And as we study the book of Ruth over the next few weeks, God, would you restore our joy? Would you cause our spirit to rejoice again and fill us with hope? I pray for those that are in a season of trial or difficulty, or, or maybe it's been a, a long season of difficulty. May they be encouraged with the story of Naomi and Ruth. So Holy Spirit, would you come and lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The world is watching right now as there's 12 young men that are stuck in a cave with their assistant soccer coach in in Thailand hoping to be rescued. They got trapped in the cave uh, now uh, over two weeks. Uh, They've been trapped in, in this place And we're praying and hoping that they uh, get out. And I'm sure as they have had these moments in the cave, they felt all is lost. They felt like, man, we're not going to make it out of this. They may be feeling that way right now. But now there's a good chance that they may get out of life. And the world has really come together to try to rescue uh, these young men. They've been able to write notes to their parents, and their parents are sending notes uh, down to them. Could you imagine how the parents are feeling? Uh, I'm sure they're struggling with moments of of thinking that all is lost. And I think Naomi, as she goes through tremendous difficulty, we're going to see three waves of trial just in these first five verses. She must have felt that all was lost. She must have felt that God is not working, that God had abandoned her. And one of the things about Naomi is she doesn't hide how she's feeling about her pain. Next week, we'll see her go back to Bethlehem. She gets reunited with old friends, and she says, just don't even call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasantness. She says, just call me Mara, because I'm bitter. Mara means bitterness. That's pretty transparent about the way that she is feeling. But thankfully, God is working. Thankfully, God is moving. And this book, this short book, is really God coming and restoring an individual's joy. And it's Naomi's joy. Not that the pain goes away, but God comes and meets her. It's not that Naomi deserved it or that necessarily Naomi was pursuing God, but God in his unconditional love for her says, I'm not going to leave you in this bitter place. I'm going to restore your joy. And through the loss of her husband and the loss of her sons, ultimately it leads to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, getting remarried to Boaz. They're blessed with a child, and that leads to the birth of Jesus Christ. God redeems it that far. He redeems it to that degree. Thankfully, God redeems pain in our lives, doesn't he? He redeems loss in our lives. He redeems sin in our lives. And I hope that you'll be encouraged over the next few weeks that God restores our joy. If you're a note taker and you like outlines, here's an outline for the book of Ruth. Chapter one is seeking a home. We see a family seeking a home. Chapter two is seeking provision. They're coming back to Bethlehem and seeking provision. And then chapters three and four, they're seeking redemption. One of my favorite figures in history is Winston Churchill. I'm just fascinated by the man. 
one of the things that resonates with his spirit is he refused to give up when everybody else said all is lost. There were so many in England at the time that were saying we could never stand up against Hitler. We could never stand up against, against Germany. We, we must concede to them. And Winston Churchill had the foresight to know what it would look like if they surrendered to Hitler. And he says, all is not lost. And he rallied the troops to be able to continue to be steadfast. And, and I hope that we land in that place. Even when it's difficult through the power of the Holy Spirit, or, or it resonates with us that all is not lost. So verse 1. We're going to take our time in these five verses this morning. Now it came to pass. Let's stop there for a while. (laughs) Now it came to pass. God is choosing to record the events of a family. And fairly quickly here we have, now it came to pass. And it's going to describe pain. And there's lots of things that come to pass in our lives. A lot of joy, a lot of sorrow, a lot of in-between. Just now it, it came to pass. And here it is, in the days when the judges ruled. So this is the time period in which Ruth and Naomi lived was in the time of the judges. And this is extremely significant for the book of Ruth and God's redemption. As we're looking at Israel's history, they're taken out of slavery in Egypt... Moses travels with them through the wilderness. Unbelief sets in. They're not able to enter into the promised land. That generation dies in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb lead in their children, the second generation, into the promised land. And that generation walks and serves serves the Lord, sees God do great things. But their children don't know the work of God, don't walk with God, and that enters into the generation of the judges. It is a very dark time in Israel's history. I want us to get a little bit of a picture of that, so turn back with me to Judges chapter 2, if you've got your Bible. Joshua, Judges. So right after the book of Ruth, just a little bit to your left, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to read down to verse 16. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. The change that can happen in one generation. Think about the the change from your parents' generation to your generation. The change from your grandparents' generation to your generation. My goodness, to think about the change from my generation to my kids' generation. Internet hit full force. When I was in high school, internet first came on the scene. Dial up, very few people had it, remember? Right? My kids will never hear that sound, right? Cell phones, smartphones, the whole thing. It's changed drastically in just one generation. And here we see a huge change that takes place on what's most significant, and that's a relationship with God. This is God's people, and there rose up a generation that didn't know the Lord. They didn't know God's works, even though they grew up in what we would consider Christian families, right? And so this is the spiritual condition in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people 
who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsake God, and they start serving these false gods that are in the land. They forsook the Lord and served Baals and Ashtaroths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hand of the plunders, who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The cycle for the children of Israel is things would start to go well. They would forget God, serve idols. God would correct them, deliver them into their enemies. They'd cry out to God. God in his grace and his mercy would raise up a judge and deliver them. They would return to the Lord, but then the cycle would continue, things would get easy, and they would forsake the Lord. A lot of times, a similar cycle that we see in our own lives. But God in his grace, in his endless pursuit of his people, he would continue to raise up a judge. And the book of Ruth really is the last chapter to the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, it ends on a very dark note. It's one of the most gruesome sections of scripture. You know, if you've you've got young kids, this this is not fun for young kids to be able to hear, but it's right, right in the scripture, and it shows us the spiritual condition. We have a Levite with his concubine traveling, and his wife ends up getting raped by the men of the city to the point where she dies. She's raped to death. Then we find the Levite finding his wife, who's now dead, and he cuts her body up in pieces, in 12 pieces, and sends it to each tribe of Israel to get their attention of the atrocity that just took place. Now, why does God record stuff like that for us in Scripture? Because it shows us what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Isn't that similar to our culture today? We say, we don't want to submit to God. We don't want to surrender to God. We don't want to surrender to any type of of authority. And the book of Judges shows us where that leads to. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because Naomi, her husband, their two sons are living in this spiritual climate. And that's their first difficulty. That, that's their first challenge. If there's ever a point in Israel's history where God could just say, okay, I'm done with Israel, this would be a good point. But instead, God chooses this family. He chooses Naomi and ultimately Ruth to bring about the lineage of his son. Isn't that awesome? So here we find Christ working in this dark backdrop. I think we can relate to this a little bit because we do live in a very dark spiritual climate and it can be overwhelming to us. And sometimes we start to feel, even as believers and Christians, and we go, all is lost. There, there, there's no hope. But we have to remember throughout the scripture, when it's darkest spiritually, that's when the Lord works. God is not done working. God is not done drawing to pe- people to himself. People's hearts are not so hard that they can't be reached by Christ. The power of the word, the power of the gospel wants to to go forth. So God brings this redemption of, of Christ ultimately coming on the scene where it's very dark spiritually. 
We continue in verse 1, and there was a famine in the land. So first difficulty is spiritual darkness. Second difficulty, we find famine in the land. It's likely that the famine may have been a result of their spiritual rebellion to God. That this was one of the ways that God would try to get the attention of the children of Israel. Baal and Ashtaroth were the false gods of fertility. They believed as they worshipped these idols that then Baal would give rain. That Ashtaroth would, would, would give rain. And God's saying, no, I'm the one who gives the rain. I'm the one who gives uh, provision. The scripture doesn't tell us why the famine. That may not be the reason. Not every famine is a result of, of God's correction. But we should at least examine the question. We should at least consider, is this famine where God is trying to, to get my attention? Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you get a flat tire, you know, don't drive to the tire shop and go, oh, God's correcting me, right? God, God's, God's trying to get my, my attention because I'm in uh, rebellion uh, to God. You're, you know if you're in rebellion to God, amen? Like, you know if you're full on forsaking the Lord and saying, so I don't want a relationship with God and I'm, I'm going to serve, serve these idols. So it's important to ask the question, but don't get yourself into that place of false guilt or, or false condemnation. So this is what they have to do. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and their two sons. So we're introduced to Elimelech, we'll see that, Naomi and her two sons, and they leave Bethlehem. Now, that's important that the events of this book are going to take place in Bethlehem, because who else is from Bethlehem? David is from Bethlehem, and David's going to come through the lineage of Ruth. But who else is from Bethlehem? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So God is beginning his story of redemption right here in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just five miles outside of Jerusalem. This certain man, he's living in Bethlehem. He's of the tribe of Judah, which is also filled with God's redemption. Each of the 12 tribes are from the 12 sons of Jacob. And one of the 12 sons was Judah, he had some sexual sin with Tamar. And it's through that relationship with Tamar that also leads to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Church, if we were going to pick one of Jacob's sons to have the genealogy of Christ, wouldn't we have picked Joseph, right? He's the candidate. He's the right, right one to, to be able to choose. But God, remember, is a God of grace. So, so he picks Judah, and Elimelech is from the line of Judah, and, and ultimately this is leading to Christ. And so they go to Moab, 50 miles outside of Israel, 50 miles from uh, the Dead Sea, to find refuge, to find food from the famine. This is a little bit more complex because God told the children of Israel, I want you to live here in this land and then he was even more specific, and he said, each tribe gets this section. So the tribe of Judah, you're supposed to live right here in this area of Israel. That's not the case for us, right? God, God doesn't say in his written word, thou shalt live in Kansas. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> if you like Kansas and you want to live there, man, the Lord bless you, right? You can watch your dog run away for three days, okay? But... <laughs> So we, we have freedom to, to live where, where God has chosen us. We don't have a, a promised land necessarily. 
But that was, it's different for the nation of Israel at this time. God says, here, I've given this, this land to you. So for them to leave Bethlehem and to go to Moab, at minimum, may not have been the wisest decision, even though there was a famine. Maybe wisdom would have been to say, you know, we're going to stay here in Bethlehem and see how God works, even though there's a famine. We're going to endeavor to return to the Lord and encourage others to return to the Lord and see God do a a work of deliverance. Even though it may not have been the wisest decision, it doesn't prevent God from working. God's going to continue to move. God's going to work in Moab. And that's encouraging to us. Have you ever made decisions that you look back and you go, those were not the wisest of decisions? And we look at other decisions and we go, those were full-on sinful decisions. But thankfully, God didn't stop moving in our lives. God didn't stop redeeming in in our lives. So here they are. They're, They're headed to Moab. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malion and Chilion, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. Ephrathites is another name for those from Bethlehem. And they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. Naomi, her name means sweetness. Her, her, Her name means pleasantness. So you can maybe imagine Naomi being born and the Hebrews would oftentimes name their children after they were born. To look at their features and say, what name fits this little girl? And, and dad probably said, oh, she's so sweet. This, this is my pleasant little princess. We're going we're gonna to name her Pleasantness. And Elimelech, his name means my God is king. That, that's the name that was given to Elimelech. And now they're in the country of Moab and they remained there. This has to be difficult to leave Bethlehem. They didn't want to leave Bethlehem. They left because of the famine. If you've ever moved out of state and moved to another part of the country and tried to find a new church and new friends and a new job, that's difficult, isn't it? If you've moved to another country with another culture where they speak another language, that's even more difficult, isn't it? So you have this family now in Moab and there's a new language that they've got to learn. They're the outsiders. It's probably very difficult to get a job. I don't think we want to hire you. You guys are from Israel. You guys are, are from, from Moab. And Moab also has a, a history in the scripture. And we see God's redemption even in this country of Moab. Genesis 19, we see God judging Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Of his family, the only ones that he can get to leave are his two daughters and his wife as well. They were instructed to not look back. The wife looked back. God turned her to a pillar of salt. And so now we find the Lot and his two daughters in a cave. And the daughters, they they go, you know what? We think all men have been destroyed. In their perspective, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed all have been destroyed, and they feel like they've got to keep the human race going. So they come up with this idea, let's get dad drunk, both have sex with him, and then we'll have children and keep the human race going. As I was rereading Genesis 19 yesterday, I had this question, where do they get the wine? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, their city has just been destroyed, and they left in a rush, and they left in a hurry, and they're up in the mountains for, for refuge, and there's wine. Somebody had to say, like, get the kegger, right? You know, like, like gr- grab, grab the wine. And they're like packing it up to, 
to this cave. Or, or they just came into the cave and they're like, somebody left a bunch of wine, right? You know, I don't, but that's a little bit of a mystery of, of how, how they had, had the wine there. And they get dad so drunk and Lot chooses to get drunk that he doesn't even know that his daughters come in to lie with him and, and they both get pregnant. And the oldest has a boy and names her son Moab. This next daughter, she has a boy and names her son Ammon. And these become two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Not a great beginning incest for a people group, correct? And we also find in the Old Testament that the Moabites came against the children of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness, but God's a God of redemption. And Ruth, who's going to marry Boaz... Naomi's daughter-in-law, she's a Moabitess. And I'm so thankful God in his love and his message of grace, he loves to redeem our lives personally, but he loves to redeem people groups, amen? And say, you know what, here's sin and here's brokenness, and I'm gonna work powerfully through that. So here they are dwelling in Moab. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left in her two sons. So Naomi's husband passes away. We don't have the, the details. And the phrase that really hit me here in verse 3 was, and she was left. She was left. And that's the reality of death. And death's not a respecter of persons. And when your spouse passes away, all of a sudden you're, you're left alone, aren't you? Maybe married for 25 years, 30 years, so used to Getting up together in the morning, you have your routines, going to sleep together at night, that companionship, and then a moment's notice, now all of a sudden, you're completely alone. Naomi must have been in a place of complete brokenness, must have been in a place of really searching. Here she is in a foreign country, in a foreign land, and now she's lost her husband, and she's a single mom. She has her two sons. Verse 4, then they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt about 10 years. Again, this is probably not the wisest decision for these boys to be marrying Moabitess. Why? Because the people of Moab don't serve the one true living God. They, they serve idols. We see with Solomon that he married a lot of foreign women, and those foreign women led his heart away to to foreign gods. Just like moving to Moab probably wasn't the wisest decision. Marrying women of Moab is not the wisest decision, but God's working and God's moving, and and he's going to move through Ruth in a powerful way. Now let's pause here for, for just a second. Even though God doesn't give up on us in unwise and sinful decisions, and he continues moving and redeeming, does that mean that we just give him as much material as possible to work with? We're like, well, you know, God's going to redeem this anyway, so it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and not use wisdom, or I'm going to go ahead and just go right into sin. No, no that, that's complete foolishness. We already give God enough to redeem without having to go on the warpath of sin. Amen? Right? And so thankfully, God, he does continue working in spite of us. And they're there for 10 years. And in these 10 years, neither Ruth or Orpah have kids. It's it's childless, which would be unusual at this time. This wouldn't necessarily be because they were choosing to not have kids, 
this is God's sovereign hand that there, there wasn't kids at this time in, in these marriages. In verse five, then both Malion and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and uh, her husband. You know, one of the things that I've observed is I think bearing a child is the hardest thing to go through in life. You know, it's very difficult to, to lose a spouse. I don't know that you can really compare the two. But getting the privilege of being able to pastor and, and be with families as they have memorial services for their children, there, there's just not an expectation that you're going to bury one of your kids. You, you don't plan on that. You know, when you have your kids and they come into the world, rightfully so, you dream about them growing into adulthood and they're supposed to bury us, right? You know, we, we communicate things to our kids like, you need, to, you need to take care of me when I'm an, an old man. Sometimes my son Wyatt, who just turned six, he says, Dad, how am I gonna carry you when you're old, right? Because <laughs> right now, I'm a lot, a lot bigger than him, you know? And sometimes he'll ask me, he says, have you ever carried your dad? Speaking of, uh, of grandpa, right? But, but this is how we imagine, this is how things are, are naturally supposed to go. And so you see these waves of grief coming over Naomi. First, spiritual darkness, the days of the judges. Then the famine, and then there's death. The loss of her husband, and now the loss of, of her two children. Now, we're going to stop here this morning, and I know this morning it's just all bad news, all right? We get the black backdrop, and then everything else is will continue as we see God starting to redeem. We see God starting to restore and rebuild Naomi's life. I don't think the pain ever went away for Naomi. I don't think she ever stopped missing her husband. I don't think she ever stopped missing her her two sons. But thankfully, God in his grace begins to restore her spirit. God in his grace begins to restore her joy. Think about for a moment in your life and reflect on how God has redeemed brokenness in your life. They say hindsight is 2020. Are, are there some trials that are far enough back where you can say it's still painful, there's still heartache, but I can also see God's work and I can see how the Lord has, has redeemed that. And then maybe there's, there's present pain in your life this morning. There's a situation in your, in your life this morning. There, there's struggle with sin and maybe your own choices or other people's choices, and it just feels like all is lost. Has there been a circumstance that's been on your mind this week or this month where you tend to go, all is lost? I don't think God is moving. I don't think God is, is working. I don't see how the Lord could turn this together for good. I really feel that the song that we sang this morning is fitting for this message, that the cross is the final word. The cross is the final word. We have something that Naomi didn't have, and that's the finished work of Christ upon the cross. We live on this side of the cross. They were living with the future hope that God would send a Messiah. We know that God loves us and that he sent his son, and we can say, God, I'm holding on to the cross in this situation. I'm holding on to the reality of your goodness because Christ has died for me. There's one more verse I want us to look at quickly and we'll be done. It's Romans 15, 13. Turn with me over to Romans 15, 13. 
It's a wonderful promise that God gives to us. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God describes himself as the God of hope. This is who he is. The biblical definition of hope is the confident expectation of coming good. We talk about hope more like a wish or a whim. I hope the Broncos have a better season this year. Now that's not a confident expectation of coming good. I know they've traded for a quarterback and they've drafted some new players, but they still are the Broncos, you know? Feast or famine, right? I hope I get a raise this year. But ultimately, with the Lord, it's the confident expectation that there is coming good in our lives, that we are headed towards eternal life, that God is working in our lives. So may the God of hope fill you with what? All joy and peace in believing. God this morning, no matter what our circumstance is, wants to give us joy. Not based on our circumstance, not happiness, but joy and peace. God's got this. God's got this. And it's a supernatural work of God that he does in our lives, and it's through believing. The joy and the peace come into my life through believing. As I can trust, choosing, choosing to trust, saying, Lord, I know your character, I know your nature, I, I know my feelings are telling me that there's all is lost, there's no hope, but I'm choosing to trust you. Trust you with all my heart, then God gives the joy and God gives the peace. He doesn't promise to change the circumstance, but he does promise joy and peace, and it says that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's the work of God in our lives. That's the Holy Spirit. Just like the Holy Spirit can make us love in a way that we couldn't, the Holy Spirit can come and give us power to be able to have hope. Instead of going through our days and saying, all is lost, to be able to go through our days and say, all is not lost, God is working. So let's pray together. Father, we want to take a moment and wait upon you and ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, at at times in our lives, it it feels like all is lost. Lord, I know that some are experiencing loss and pain in a similar way to Naomi. Some have buried children. Lord, some have lost a spouse. Some are going through famine. And Lord, would you minister and would you comfort and you would bring peace and would you bring joy where is it in your life that you have lost hope allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to you is there a relationship that you have lost hope in Is there a struggle with sin? You've lost the hope of victory. Is there a situation that you've lost hope in?
allow the cross to have the final word. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.